I was thinking as uh, as I was thinking about today, of course we are approaching July 4th, but I was listening to a series, an audio series by a, a, a scholar, a Christian scholar, actually historian, I should say. And one of the questions he asked was kind of interesting. He said, when did Christianity begin? Now think about that for a second. When did Christianity actually begin? Any thoughts from the floor? July 4th. That's a good idea. <laughs> that would tie in so well. Maybe it did. We don't know. Well, the thought is, you know, did it begin at Jesus' birth? Well, that would probably make sense, right? But really, you know, the, the, the Bible doesn't even tell us anything from his birth, one little blip at 12, and then nothing until 30. So was there really anything approaching Christianity from his birth forward? No, probably not. Well, then was it his baptism? Okay, that was the next big thing. But then from his baptism, he goes into the wilderness for some undetermined amount of time. So probably not there when he came back and started his ministry, perhaps, but there was really nothing during Jesus' earthly ministry that approaches what Christianity is today. So maybe it's Calvary. What are you going to say? I think it's Genesis 1-1. Okay, well, if you're going to be real, uh, you know, fundamental about it, that's great. No. She's really got a point. You know, the Bible begins at Genesis 1-1. But Christianity as a world religion, his position was, it wasn't even Easter necessarily. Because if you think about it, Easter was invisible to the first followers. It happened while they were sleeping. It happened while they were laying awake staring at the ceiling. But they didn't even know that it had happened, even though they had been warned. And they didn't recognize Jesus. It took them a while to be able to recognize Jesus before they really started to understand that in some way that they didn't understand that he was still alive. But his point was, and I think it's well taken, well, you don't have to agree, that Christianity began when Jesus' first followers finally got their heads and their hearts wrapped around the fact that he was alive. When they not only first recognized he was alive, but took that fullness on. Maybe we could say it began at Pentecost, but it may not just be a hard date like that. Because every single one of his followers had to have their moment, their Pentecost moment. Did it happen all at once? I don't know. But there was a time when they started to understand that Jesus was still alive, and when the full implications, the radical implications of what that meant came home to them, As a group, they began changing the whole Roman world. So, if we take a look at it that way, what we're seeing is that each follower had to have his or her own personal revolution, an interior revolution. Something had to take place in them. They had to be willing to lay down everything they think they knew as a human being. People don't just come back to life, right? They had to lay everything down in order to be able to move into a new present, which translated into a new future. Nothing short of absolutely revolutionary here. This is what we're, we're seeing, not only in them, but in ourselves. But like any revolution, it doesn't just start overnight. It doesn't just happen without any preparation. It had been a long road for them to get to the point that they could actually move into this revolutionary way of living their lives. For the last four months since Lent, we've been looking at this progression 
You know, Lent for us was a time of stripping away, a time of paring down to be able to prepare ourselves for the Calvary moment and for Easter beyond, to take away all the distractions. And if you think about it, this was the whole life of Jesus' followers as they were following his earthly ministry. First of all, they started out marginalized anyway. Most of them started out very poor. And so life had already stripped away a lot of the distractions, a lot of the impediments that many of us face when we're trying to work on an interior life and a connection that is unseen. But then where did they go from there? They left their nets and followed him. They left their, their money tables. They left so much of their life behind in order to follow Jesus. So even starting from a pretty stripped-down position in life, they stripped down even further the things in layers coming off as they were moving toward their moment at Calvary. And now think about that Calvary moment for a second. You probably have had one, many of them, several of them. I've had some. It's that moment when everything that you're holding on to, everything that you think it is to be you and to be a human being is killed right in front of your eyes. That moment when it just goes away. You think about his followers who had hitched everything and hinged everything on him and his presence and suddenly it's gone in a way that they never thought possible. What was that doing to them? How does that change their perspective? How does that change their desire and their will to go forward? I was coming out of my uh, garage, I think it was Thursday or Friday, and my neighbor right across the, the way was getting his mail, and he looked over and he said, Hi, beautiful day. And, and so we, we ended up starting to talk. Now, I know that my neighbor has just lost his wife, and we talked about that. And not only did he lose his wife, she took her life. She was depressed for so many years, clinically depressed, and uh, she just couldn't take it anymore. And so we're talking about this, and he was telling me this is the hardest thing that he's ever had to go through, how weird it was to be in the house alone. I mean, could you imagine that? I mean, you have your significant other, you have your family, and then suddenly the house is empty and you're still there, and all those things that you remember interacting with that other person, they're just there and the person's gone. He's going through this right now. He had a Calvary moment. Not only that... He was her caretaker. He was the one who watched out for her. He was the one who felt he couldn't really leave the house because he didn't know what she would do if he wasn't there. And she needed things. She was debilitated. Now what's he going to do? In three weeks, he's leaving for Alaska to visit some family. And then he's got other family in New Zealand, and he didn't want to take a 14-hour flight all at once, so he's going to stop in Oahu, and spend four days there, and then go on to New Zealand. And he told me about all the things that he was doing, the family that he was visiting. It's interesting how even the things that are most traumatic, the things that we lose, are also doors to something different. It's hard to think of a person as an impediment or a distraction, and it's not really that so much as it is a certain way of life that locks you down. And when that is removed, a door opens to a whole different way of life and allows you to grow. We were actually standing in the parking lot talking about this loss of identity that he has. He was a a husband. He was a caretaker. He was a provider. He was all these things. And suddenly he's not those things anymore. So who is he? His job, if you will, is to 
explore his own identity. And he'll have that opportunity now because his life has completely changed. If you take a look at Jesus and what he said to his followers, he said, it's to your advantage that I go. They couldn't figure that out. That was crazy to them. But he knew that even his physical presence had become an impediment to them toward actually connecting with spirit the way that they were supposed to. On their own, on on their own two feet, connecting directly with spirit and not letting Jesus do all the heavy lifting and, and drafting after. And that's exactly what happened. The Calvary moment opened the door to the Pentecost moment. They couldn't see it then, but eventually, of course, that they did. And so this is what primed them for the revolution that was coming inside, this interior revolution, I'm calling it. Because once they understood that Jesus was alive and how he was alive, it changed everything. Since they didn't have his physical presence to hang on to, they found a new boldness. They found a new power within them that allowed them to move out and change everything in that world. And there's parallels between the macro world and the micro world. There's parallels between the group and the individual. And what we see happening in individuals, we also see happening in groups. Israel is often taken in Scripture as a single person. And we see Israel going through the same shape of the journey. And Moses having to be pulled out of their midst, his physical presence pulled out so that they could take the land and identify and move through it the way that they were supposed to. So if we're trying to prepare for a personal revolution, what is it that we can maybe learn from the macro? What can we learn from a national revolution that may also give us some clues about how we can prepare, how we can choose, and what's going on at the steps of the way that we're taking as we move toward our own interior revolution? And here's where we get to the July 4th connection. If you take a look in your... uh, And your inserts, I don't know if you can get that on the screen there, buddy. This is the Declaration of Independence. Let's see if if Mr. Jefferson and some of the founders can give us anything that will help us as we're preparing to move into this revolutionary way of dealing with spirit and relating with spirit and with each other. So in Congress, July 4th, 1776, the unanimous declaration of the 13 United States of America. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. Nobody talks that way anymore, do they? God, you have to love it, though. How much is packed into that short paragraph? Think about it. You know, the first assumption there that's going on is political bans. These political bans are not divinely instituted. They are not destined. They are not indisputable. It has nothing to do with the divine right of kings, which was prevalent in Europe at the time. These bands are contracts. These alliances are contracts. And they exist to serve the people. 
Once they get instituted, it seems to go back to front, and the people are serving the bands, serving the alliances, serving the contracts. But this is not it. These bands that the people institute for themselves are there to serve them and can stand only as long as they serve all parties in the contract. Think of it like Jewish law. Remember Jewish law? What did Jesus say? He said the Sabbath, the law, was made for mankind, not mankind for the Sabbath. We don't exist to slavishly follow these laws. These laws are here to serve us, to help us, to funnel us into an experience with our God. That changes everything. And if it's not doing that, then there's no purpose for the law because it has not followed its intent anymore. So think about you. Think about what's holding you in place. What are the bands that you've put in place or have put in place for you while you weren't looking? Are they relationships or jobs or living arrangements, group affiliations, or simply your attitudes and your beliefs that are holding you in place that seem like reality, like, that seem like all that there is. But really, they are there to serve you. They are there to serve relationship. And everyone who is in your sphere of influence, everyone who is in your blast zone, I like to say, should they be dissolved? Are they still serving their purpose? You know, these are the things that we need to consider. If we're looking for a personal revolution, we need to look and see what is impeding us from the next step. I'm going to say you go dissolve relationships irresponsibly. Of course not. But to look at every part of your life, and especially look within, what is the belief system that you're bringing to everything that you do, to every other political band, social band that you have? Your belief system, your attitudes are coloring that. We think that they're just reality, but no. Maybe it's something that we can overthrow. Maybe it's something that we should overthrow. The first step is to look at it that way, as Jefferson is doing here to the political power that was imposed on the colonies and saying, you know what? It doesn't belong anymore. And why? Because there are certain human rights that are unalienable, that derive directly from the laws of nature, and from God who created nature. Take a look at this next paragraph. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Self-evident truths, self-evident, all men are created equal, unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Unalienable. There's a word that we don't run across that much anymore. What's alienable? What does that word mean? And then we'll take the opposite. Well, it means to estrange. It means to turn off. It means to divide. It means to distance, to isolate, to cut off. And from a legal standpoint, it means to transfer from one party to another. That's, to, that's alienable. 
unalienable means that none of that stuff is possible. You cannot cut it off. You cannot divide it. You cannot turn it off. And you can't transfer it any other way. These rights to life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness are rock solid. And the state exists to protect these rights. And they derive their power directly from the consent of the governed. We've got to remind ourselves of that every once in a while, don't we? These folks get their power from our consent. And we're supposed to be able to take it away when needed, when they are no longer doing their job. When the state fails to protect these very rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, people have the right to abolish it. And each of us needs to realize that we need to protect our own rights from ourselves. Sometimes we're our own worst enemies. Sometimes we're our own worst tyrant in terms of keeping in place those beliefs and those attitudes that are so limiting or the trauma of the past that continues to enforce upon us certain patterns of belief and patterns of thinking. When do we know it's time to change? When do we know that it's time for a revolution? Look at this last paragraph. Prudence, indeed, will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. And accordingly, all experience has shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. That is one huge statement. Huge. Mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. A revolution should never be taken lightly. Why? Because it's always going to get worse before it gets better. A revolution uproots everything around you. You don't do that unless you absolutely have to. And at the same time, or on the other hand, people, all of us, are sort of wired to continue to keep what's in place in place just because it's familiar and sometimes for no other reason or because the fear sets in. Maybe this is as good as it gets. Maybe I don't deserve any more. Maybe I'll lose what little I have. All of these fearful thoughts are in the back of our brains, coming to the front of our brains and keeping that inertia in place, keeping us in place beyond the point that we know things need to change. But good sense also comes in and says, we don't just overthrow things for no reason because a revolution is going to be painful and some of us are not going to survive it. Internally, it's the same thing. This revolution we're talking about, this interior revelation, is going to throw you into chaos, throw you into disturbance, throw you into disorientation for an indeterminate amount of time. Count the cost before you move. Jesus said that. Count the cost. Make sure you're ready for this, to do this. But don't wait. And of course, when we hit the Calvary moments that life provides for us, that stripping away often provides the impetus for us to move forward. That moment before the revolution will look less frightening when more has been stripped away. When we are finally less afraid of the revolution than the status quo, 
then we can move forward. And this is how it is with our personal lives. We see the better path sometimes way long before we take it. How many of you have been in a job way too long? You end up sabotaging yourself and getting yourself fired because you didn't have the chutzpah to get up and just leave? My whole 20s were like that. I, didn't, I don't think I had a going-away party from a job for 10 years. But you know what? We, this is the human condition. This is what we do. We see the better path. We know we need to go, but we fear the revolution. We fear the unknown when we'd rather suffer with what is familiar than to risk the unknown. The devil we know as opposed to the devil we don't know. In human relationships, there's a word for this. It's called codependency. Huh? You know what the definition of codependency is right out of the book? The tendency to behave in overly passive or excessively caretaking ways that negatively impact one's relationships and quality of life. I'm sure we've all been there. We do this as individuals. We do this as groups, families. We do this as churches. And we do this as nations as well. Why? Because of the fear, of course. This fear that this might be as good as it gets or I'm going to lose whatever I already have. The Hebrews, if you think about it, after they left Egypt, left slavery, what did they end up doing? They end up crying about their leeks and their onions that they had back in Egypt that they didn't have in the desert anymore. You know, It's, it's so human to, to find ourselves in these positions. What motivated the colonists in the United in, in the in the Americas to revolt against a global superpower. It was generations of abuse. And not only just generations of abuse, but the realization that it was never going to get any better. It was only going to get worse. And the longer that they stayed in the place that they were at, the harder it was going to be to ever affect any kind of change. They knew all these things. And they finally decided to act at great personal cost, knowing what a war would bring. And there was great dissension in the ranks. You know, it, wasn't, it wasn't unanimous, although it, the declaration was eventually unanimous. It took a long time to get there. So what will motivate us, then, to revolt against sp- our own spiritual codependence and to take this stand, to move forward? Jesus, if you think about it, was a personal revolutionary. A lot of scholars like to paint him as a social revolutionary, but he really wasn't that. He never worked from the top down. He always worked from the bottom up. He worked in the macro. He worked with the individual. But he was an absolute personal revolutionary. He risked everything in his life. He took everything that he had in family, in his hometown, the business he had, and put it aside and moved out on his own to pursue his unalienable rights. Now, what rights were those? What were Jesus' unalienable rights? He called them Abba. He called them kingdom. Those were the unalienable rights. His unalienable right to the Father's love, that love that can't be lost because it can't be gained, that is the right that he was looking for, that he found, this ultimate inalienable right of God's love. And then Jesus set his followers on the same path. And a few of them made it to revolution. So many kept dropping off. The scriptures tell us how many of his followers dropped off during the path. But that few stayed. And they turned their world, and eventually our world, I was going to say upside down, but really right side up. 
But then as the movement grew after the crucifixion and a few generations out, then Christianity became more established. It became an institution. And it was no longer revolutionary. Now it became the norm. Now it became the default. Now it became the power structure. And this is when the faithful, the ones that really were still trying to find their unalienable rights, left their cities and went out into the deserts to again strip everything away and find out what was really real. And then a thousand years later, there was a little man in Italy who rediscovered his unalienable right this right to God's love. And he started his own revolution. After his Calvary moment in a prison, as a prisoner of war, in a skirmish between the city-states in northern Italy, he came back home and he cast off his privileges as the son of a wealthy merchant, all of his familiar life. Francis of Assisi was a revolutionary, an absolute revolutionary. And his followers were too, for a time. I want to read you a paragraph just so you see how, how the shape of this moves. A man like St. Francis of Assisi, for instance, what does he really mean? A complete break with the pattern of history. A man born out of due time. A sudden unexplained revival of the primitive spirit of Christianity. The work he began still continues, but it is not the same. The revolution is over. The revolutionaries have become conformists. The little brothers of the little poor man are rattling alms boxes in the railway square or dealing in real estate to the profit of the order. Of course, that isn't the whole story. They teach, they preach, they do the work of God as best they know, but it is no longer a revolution, and I think we need one now. See, every generation has to have its own revolution. You can lose something in one generation by not teaching the children. You can lose something in one generation by not giving permission and encouraging that those members of that new generation to engage in their own personal revolution that will infuse and inform the entire generation. Each one of us has to go through this shape. It can't be transferred. It can't be bestowed to us. Just because our forebears created this revolution, where is that revolution now? in our national life? And where is the revolution of Jesus and Francis in our lives? Is it there? We need to be honest with ourselves. Are we really moving toward this place, this, this, this new life? Are we still living under the tyranny of our own fear that keeps us spiritually codependent, passive, How are we going to do this? How are we going to get our desire ramped up so that it is more powerful than the fear we have of keeping ourselves in place? Richard Rohr wrote the next couple of paragraphs. It is said that Francis' great prayer, which he would spend whole nights praying, was, Who are you, God? And who am I? Just questions of basic identity. Contemplative prayer helps us to live into these questions. As we observe our minds in contemplation, first we recognize how many of our thoughts are defensive, oppositional, paranoid, self-referential, or in some way violent. Until we recognize how constant that mind is, we have no motivation to go out of it. No motivation to have a revolution. Contemplation teaches us to say, that feeling is not me. I don't need that opinion to define me. 
I don't need to justify myself or blame someone else. Those political bands are only there for as long as they are working toward moving me closer to Christ. Gradually, we learn to trust the wounds and the failures of life, which are much better teachers than our supposed successes. It's all a matter of letting go and getting out of the way. Teresa of Lisieux would call it surrender and gratitude. Letting my mind accept and surrender to the mystery that I am to myself. It doesn't need to quickly categorize this mystery as sinful, wrong, and evil, or as good, meritorious, and wonderful. It just is. When I can no longer hold myself up, I fall into the mystery of God and let God hold me. When I no longer name myself as right or wrong, I let someone else, in capitals, name me. When I allow God to keep revealing the deeper mystery of mercy and grace and love to me, I don't categorize or hold on to God too easily, too quickly, as if I understand God, as if I've got God in my pocket. Those who allow God to reveal God's self are the very ones who know that God is love. They know that God is not a harsh judge or conditional lover, that God's love is an endless sea of mercy and unconditional acceptance. The deeper you go, the more you fall into the mystery. And you fall into the mystery of an ever-loving God, you are able to accept the mystery of yourself. And as you accept the mystery of yourself, you fall into the mystery of God. You don't know, and it doesn't matter which comes first. (laughs) People who love God love themselves and everybody else. People who love themselves and everybody else also love God. This is the path of the revolution. But we need to identify the impediments, the distractions, the diversions, and see them as those political bands that were there for a purpose at one point or another, but if they're not serving the purpose anymore, they need to go away. Rohr is speaking in a typical mystical language that's sometimes, I guess, hard to decipher, to make sense of, to make relevant. But think of it this way. Are you feeling that there is more to life? Have you tried everything? Everything in the status quo, in the way that your life is, in the familiar part of your life, have you tried everything to get someplace else and you're not fulfilled? It's not working. Are you tired of being afraid? Are you tired of being anxious and worried, oppressed, controlling, oppressive and controlling? Are you hearing yourself always defending yourself, defending your beliefs, debating Are you often annoyed or angry or offended or indignant at everyone else, at others, at life? If all these things are starting to happen, there is that bubbling up. You know that you've stayed too long at this particular job. It's time to go. Are you going to stay there until it actually has to be sabotaged and taken away from you? Or can you make the decision? Because you're getting close to the revolution point. You're getting close where your desire for something more is greater than your fear of the unknown, the fear of the revolution itself. You're all here. That tells me you probably believe at some level that Jesus is alive, that the promise that he gave us is real, that it stands, right? But maybe the full implications of what that means has not come through to you yet. It hasn't set in. You're still 
living somewhere between Easter and Pentecost. You know that he's alive. You've seen him, but it hasn't come through in a way that gives you the power and the boldness. How do we break through? That's as individual as each one of us is. We're going to have to experience that for ourselves. But I want to read to you the closing of the Declaration and see if we can get a little bit of a sense of this as well. We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America, in general Congress, assembled, appealing to the supreme judge of the world for the multitude, for the rectitude of our intentions, do in the name and by the authority of the good people of these colonies solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are, and of right ought to be, free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved. And that as a free and independent states, they have full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and do all other acts and things which independent states may of right do. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Could you imagine King George reading this for the first time? I would like to have been a fly on the wall of that room. This is as bold as it gets, isn't it? Look at what they're saying. Look at how clear and unequivocally they are saying it. This is what it looks like. When a people moves, this is what it looks like to be all in, to move in a direction and not look back. When we can be as convinced as they are of the direction, as convinced as Jesus, as convinced as Francis, of our inability to continue life as it is in a profitable direction, in a direction that makes sense for us and all of the precious relationships in our life. When we are completely convinced of our own unalienable right to God's love, then we can be this bold. We can mount our own interior revolution, a revolution for one. It'll look different in detail for each and every one of us, but it'll look the same in the effect that it has as we move into this new place. Then we, like the early church, can be in one accord in that room as we move through the effect of this revolutionary process. Once we know that we hold an unalienable right to a love that we can never lose, then we can turn our world and the world of those around us back right side up again. So this 4th of July, in three days, when our nation is 242 years old, and you're watching the fireworks, and you're eating the hot dogs, and you're having the celebration with your family and your friends, take a moment to just let that sink in a little deeper. As you're just watching those fireballs go off, see if it can move inside. And the example, the model of what this represents in the macro can inform our own lives and move us forward to put down the things 
that would keep us from everything that God has for us. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you. We thank you for our nation. We thank you for our founders. We, we thank you for everything around us that, that couches us and supports us and gives us the ability to sit in this room and talk freely and to have this kind of discourse between us. Thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for our families that do the same thing in our lives, for, for this church community, for all the bits and pieces that stitch together to form the fabric that we, we lean on and lean into and, and lie on. And of course, Father, thank you for your love that undergirds that all and makes everything possible from the beginning. What we really want, Lord, is everything that you have to give us. And we know that it's already been given, but we're being held back in bits and pieces and things in our lives. So help us to find that place find that freedom, even if it's just momentary enough, to put them down and to move forward, to mount the revolution that is needed inside, to have nothing standing between us and your spirit. That's what we want, Father. Thank you for loving us as you do, Lord. Never let us forget we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.